From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As midterm elections approach, where does that leave American democracy? Our promise as a country is unfulfilled. And to fulfill that and to be better, we have to be more honest and encounter some hard truths that we've never dealt with as a nation. And therein lies a great opportunity. Colorado Representative Jason Crow, a Democrat, and Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney, a Republican, wade through the political divide for the University of Denver's Democracy Summit. Later, how recent wildfires in Colorado are leading to a new concept called climate gentrification and using digital technology to preserve endangered languages. That identify who we are as people, as Native people. You know, your culture and language is what makes you distinct. During the recent membership drive, you made it clear that you understand your essential role in keeping CPR well-funded. I've been listening to CPR for a number of years, and it was finally time to step up and financially support CPR. I think it's very important that we support this wonderful service that we have available in our community. I appreciate you guys, and as a new listener, I know it's my responsibility to support you. Thank you for your support. You make it all possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The University of Denver held its second annual Democracy Summit this month. Among the speakers, Colorado Representative Jason Crow, a Democrat, and Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney, a Republican. Their focus of the conversation was a big topic, restoring American democracy. Ryan Heath from Politico moderated the discussion, and we're going to share it with you now. There's no getting around January 6th in this discussion, but I'll also push you to look forward about how we're going to, going forward, make our fragile democracy more resilient, including by restoring trust in it. If I can throw it to you first, Representative Cheney, thinking about your work on the January 6th committee, it's ongoing. Could you give us some insights into your plan for turning the results of that committee work into tangible messages that people are going to be able to grip around their kitchen table and changes that might win the support of, I don't know, more than 45% of the American public. These issues are just crucially important, as you pointed out. And I do think that as we look as a committee at what very clearly provoked the violence on the day of the 6th and the extent to which the you know former president and those around him uh, were responsible for that, uh, the story of that is is important also because it tells you how fragile our institutions are. And I think that certainly as I talk to people across Wyoming, as I talk to people across the country, making sure people recognize that it, that at the end of the day, it's individuals who make a difference. And, and I think that is a message for the future. And, and it's a message about you, you can't just sit back and say, well, the institutions held that day without stopping to think about why that was and stopping to think very specifically about the people at a state level, uh, at a local level, people who stood up to pressure from former President Trump and did their jobs, people like Vice President Pence, who stood up to tremendous pressure um, to to do something that was not only un-American, but would have been unconstitutional and illegal in terms of the former president pressuring him to reject electoral votes. And if you look at 
the Capitol Police officers, the Metropolitan Police officers, the people who fought unbelievably intense battle for hours that day to defend us, to defend the Capitol. And, and the message of all of that is, is just such a lesson for us uh, as Americans in particular, for people who live in democracies all around the world. And that is that those democracies don't sustain themselves and they don't survive without the commitment and dedication, contribution of individual people all across uh, our, our uh, elective offices, as well as at, at state and local levels. And I, I think that is just a fundamentally nonpartisan message that, that we have to carry with us and, and, and inspire young people, especially to get involved and engaged because of the important role they have to play. Such an important takeaway. We all have choices uh, about how we conduct ourselves in a democracy. Representative Crow, some are arguing that Democrats are now using January 6th just to create political mileage for the midterm elections. Give us your view on what, what's a way where we can deliver justice, make clear what is and isn't acceptable behavior in our democracy, while not simply running a political party campaign at. Well, thanks for uh, guiding this conversation, Ryan, and thank you to the University of Denver and the Corbell School of International Studies for hosting this and putting this forum together. It's a really important discussion, and maybe it's never been more important than it is now as democracy faces multiple threats. Uh, and as we're really in um, a, uh, the end of the first decade of a democratic recession, starting around 2011 to 2012, democracies around the world started to recede after about 20 years of progression. So uh, having this uh, intentional conversation is very important. And of course, to my friend, uh, Liz Cheney, it's always a joy to, to join in conversations. And I think that's, that's just proof that uh, you can disagree on uh, all myriad of political and policy issues. But at the end of the day, we're, we're Americans and, and fundamentally our values and what we have in common, and our, our willingness to defend the Constitution and truth as a stronger tie on any given day than maybe any of our policy disagreements. So, I mean, I think what we have to look at when we um, look at these efforts to recharacterize or to reframe what happened on January 6th as a couple of things. Number one, our independent obligation to tell the truth regardless. Uh, I've long said that I can't influence or I can't force other people to say what I want them to say, but I have my own obligation. I've taken an oath many times in my life. I took an oath when I first joined the military. I took an oath when I, I re-enlisted. I took an oath when I became a lawyer, and I took an oath again as a member of Congress. And all of those oaths had independent obligations for me to tell the truth and to continue to tell that truth, sometimes um, at, at personal cost. Um, so we have to continue to do that and not shy away from it and not uh, be encumbered by other people's lies or, or disinformation. But we also can't be naive about the fact that disinformation, uh, misinformation and disinformation is out there and that there are people who frankly are unencumbered by the truth, who are willing to say anything and do anything. Uh, and uh, unlike years and generations past, because this isn't a new dynamic in America, there have always been people who have dealt in disinformation and misinformation and conspiracy theories. What's different about this now is we they have the, the tools of spreading that uh, with social media, uh, with uh, uh, certain cable news, and with other outlets that allow the vast spread of that information uh, at the same time as you have uh, people legitimizing it and mainstreaming it, holding very high offices in the land. So there, there are two dynamics that make this very unique. And I think we have to make sure that we are addressing both of those by standing up and not allowing 
uh, people that, that hold offices, uh, people that are that, that serve with us in Congress to do so without that being answered. Now, the leadership challenge for anyone who is in a position is obvious, and that is uh, we don't want to give oxygen to that unnecessarily, and we don't want to elevate folks who say and do egregious things, but at the same time, we can't allow things to go unanswered. So that, frankly, is a very tough challenge for those of us that have platforms and figuring out how we manage and balance those two things. I was wondering if we could dig a little bit into the the how aspect. How are you going to create a path for winning this internal debate inside the Republican Party about the need for free and fair elections and, and sticking to the Constitution? You know, I think the audience would love to hear what your plan is for outlasting what seems to be a majority at the moment in your caucus that, that is really questioning these core tenets of democracy. Well, it, it is, uh, I think, just such a, it's a crucial question. I think that as a country, uh, we have to have two healthy political parties. We have to have a healthy Democratic Party, a healthy Republican Party. And I think that, you know, certainly things change very quickly in our politics. Uh, there are definitely things that, you know, have happened over the last year that, that I would not have anticipated. But I think that, that there's a, a sort of a fundamental underpinning of everything we do. And, and certainly for me as a conservative, I believe in conservative principles. I believe in limited government and low taxes and a strong national defense. And I believe those are the right policies for America to pursue. And to me, the notion that fidelity to the Constitution is something that, that people will abandon goes in the face of, of everything that, that conservatives have stood for. And, and so I think reminding people about the extent to which all of the fundamental policy debates we have to have, you know, when you think about uh, Jason and I and, and the differences that we have, in order to be able to debate those differences, we have to have a fundamental grounding in this, the notion of you know, what, what are the freedoms that are defended and, and that are protected by the Constitution? And, you know, our ability to walk onto the floor of the House and to have those discussions and debates, we only have that, that ability because people in uniform primarily have defended the nation, defended those freedoms. And so I think um, there is a real need to remind people that Republicans used to stand for you know, fidelity to the plain text of the Constitution, fidelity to the rule of law, and that, that that's the most conservative of conservative principles, in my view. And I have found tremendous receptivity to that idea and, and tremendous outreach from people across Wyoming, people across the country, and, and especially young people, the numbers of young people who will often, they will come to me and say, we might not agree with you on many of your policy issues, but, but we know that it matters that we live in a constitutional republic, and we know that it matters we have to fight for those principles. And I, I believe that's my responsibility, and that's my duty, and not to calculate the, the political piece of it, because fundamentally it's got to be about something much more important than, than the politics. And do you feel that you can reconvince or uh, make sure that your caucus colleagues um, are able to return to their former positions, their former line, or is it going to take a new generation of Republican members of Congress to, to be able to win that fight? We have a very serious problem inside the Republican conference in the House right now. And I would say that 
part of that problem is the fact that we have people who know the truth and won't speak the truth about the election and about Donald Trump. Um, but, but we also have inside of our conference people who have espoused anti-Semitic views, have espoused white nationalist, white supremacist views, and who uh, have not lost their committee assignments for whom there have been no repercussions. And so part of my view about what we have to do to get our party back to health and back to advocating for these principles that matter so much is we have to be clear that we want to have a big tent, but no tent should ever be big enough to include anti-Semitism and racism and bigotry, that there are views that are outside of political discourse in this nation. And, and I think both sides have to do that. Uh, I, I would say, you know, the Democrats in the House have similar challenges. But if you look at our party right now in the House, part of what we have to do is also be willing to, to say we reject a certain set of these views that, that are completely unacceptable in our discourse. Congressman Crow, uh, we've got a great audience question that I want to bring in, and, and each of you should feel free to answer it. Um, Dustin, who's a Corbell graduate student, asks, how do we reach people on both the left and the right who no longer believe that American democracy works for them or serves their interests? Yeah, that's a, that's a really nice question, Dustin. I think um, two things. Number one, ultimately, the change is not going to happen in Washington, right? I mean, we set a tone uh, we certainly have a bully pulpit and, and uh, have a, a very important role to play in, in uh, promoting civility, truth, and civil discourse. But ultimately, this is going to have to be a public project of the American people. And you know, I've called for, uh, since uh, the one-year anniversary of January 6th, which we, we, we just observed last month, a new type of American patriotism, a new American patriotism that looks a little bit different from the old type of American patriotism. It's grounded more in humility and honesty and discourse, this understanding that you know, our promise uh, as a country is unfulfilled. And to fulfill that and to be better, we have to be more honest and encounter some hard truths that we've never dealt with as a nation. And therein lies a great opportunity. So it's gonna require everybody to stand up and, and push forward hard, uncomfortable conversations. Now, that's the important part here is um, if you look at you look back at history, in those moments where fascist movements or autocracy has overcome democracy, it's never a widespread movement within those societies and countries. It's never the majority of people staying up saying, yes, we choose fascism over democracy. It's always a small, extreme number of folks who are able to do it because the larger number of people, the majority, stay silent. So the lesson from that is that you know, normal Americans, the people who do not believe in these uh, extreme policies that very uh, small numbers of folks do, can't allow it to go unchecked. We have to call it out. And yes, that's gonna be uncomfortable. It's gonna be hard to do, uh, but folks need to start speaking up at community meetings, at town halls, at school board meetings, because that silent majority, if they remain silent, allows it to happen. So that's number one. And really, the, the second is we need to start making the case for democracy writ large. After the fall of the Soviet Union and into the Cold War, we got complacent and we stopped making the case for why democracy and freedom are relevant and how it impacts people's everyday lives for the better. Uh, we've taken that for granted. And now I 
hear and see this uh, going around, people say, well, why does it matter that we're involved in Ukraine or should support Ukraine? Why does it matter if uh, a strong man uh, tries to conquer a, a democratic country with tanks? Well, how does that impact me in my life? What that tells me is we stopped making the case effectively and we have to start doing that again because it's all tied together. Congresswoman Cheney, do you have any thoughts on how to engage those people who feel left behind? And, and perhaps it's economic as well. It's not just political discourse. It's uh, if you feel that globalization didn't work for you, maybe that's one of the reasons why you're not trusting American democracies these days. Yeah, I, look, I think that a lot of it has to do with, um, we have to do a much better job at teaching American history in our schools. And I think at, at reminding people, and it's world history too, reminding people that, you know, as imperfect as America is, as imperfect as democracy is, there is no form of government that has provided more freedom for more people ever in history. And so making sure that everyone understands that they do have a voice, that they can exercise that voice, that they should be heard, but realizing that all of our students need to read the Federalist Papers. I mean, you need the, the, the miracle of what our founders did, again, imperfect though it was, provided the fundamental framework for us to achieve the ideals, you know, that, that we all want to achieve as a society. And, you know, I have to say that as we were going through, for example, the debates and the discussions around whether we should object to electoral votes over a year ago, um, going back and reading the Federalist Papers, reading what Alexander Hamilton wrote about why did the founders want our president, uh, want, want our, elector, our electors to meet outside of the Capitol, you know, what, they're, what, what they were thinking about when they uh, devised a system that would attempt to be as free as possible from political pressure, and, and recognizing and understanding the fundamental miracle that, that happened in this country before we were a country when this, you know, handful of men decided that, you know, we ought to have a society that based upon these liberal ideals. And what a tremendous blessing it is that that is the country in which we live. What a tremendous obligation that imposes on all of us to defend those institutions, to make sure we can hand them to the next generation and to improve them certainly as we go. And I think that's, the, the notion of individuals making a difference. You know, I, I've worked in Eastern Europe. Uh, I've worked in the Middle East. Uh, I've worked in countries around the world before there were democracies uh, in Eastern Europe as the wall came down, the Middle East countries that are not democracies in, in the Arab world, for example. And the fundamental uh, rightness of being able to make decisions about who leads you and what kind of um, laws are passed and having freedom of speech and the freedom to worship the way you want and, and all of those freedoms that are protected in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights are invaluable and, and so important for, for young people to learn that so that they understand what's at stake um, when you watch how messy our democracy is and how many flaws that it has, realizing there is no better system and we all have to work to make this one the best possible. The U.S. does have an extraordinary self-correcting capacity. That's that's my observation as a foreigner. So I want any American listening to 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 know that and, and be proud of that. Uh, mentioning Eastern Europe, it reminded me uh, that once upon a time I was working at the European Union as an official, and I had 
a front row seat to the unraveling of democracy in Hungary. And it's my eternal regret that I didn't push harder and sooner to, to prevent that or, or do my small part in that. And I wonder uh, how close each of you think we might be in the US for some kind of Hungary style tipping point, that moment where the institutions get hijacked and the cronyism sets in. I think that we, we, we came very close. And when you have uh, a president who is willing to go to war with the rule of law uh, and willing to blow through the guardrails of democracy, that, that is something that, you know, if, if, if we were to uh, give the former president that power again, it's hard to imagine how we could recover as a country. Um, you know, we, we can survive bad policy. And, you know, certainly my, my partisan view is that we've got a lot of bad policy happening now, but we can't, we can't, as one of my colleagues said, we can't survive torching the Constitution. And I think it's really important for people to recognize how close we came, how, and, and what a fragile thing it is to defend and to ensure that that doesn't happen again. Yeah, and I agree with that. I mean, there's that that famous adage that uh, democracy is no uh, is just one generation away from extinction, and that's rooted in the the notion that democracy is not institutions, it's not documents. Uh, there's no external thing that makes a democracy that protects it and self perpetuates it. It's just people. It's just people that decide to uphold it, to uphold those norms, those traditions, uphold those institutions, uphold the rule of law. And when people d decide to stop doing it, which can happen at any time, then it goes away. And I think that's one of the lessons, particularly from the last four to five years, is when you see people stop enforcing rule of law, uh, there, is, there is no external factor that keeps it going. It just stops. So uh, it is fragile. Uh, and I think that uh, it's a time for humility. It's a time for us to recognize the fragility of it all. Uh, and I think if we do that right, if we actually have that humility and recognize the fragility, it could be, uh, uh, it could be a wonderful moment for our country. We could reinvigorate it. Uh, it could be, it could refresh a democracy in our society. It could engage young folks, uh, which I continue to be extremely encouraged by. Uh, the last uh, four to five years, we've seen an engagement of younger generations in our democracy, people running for office, people organizing, uh, people speaking up uh, that we didn't see before. And I, I get a lot of solace out of that uh, because we can certainly come out of this better. But that that also is not inevitable. It can go one of two ways. We can come out of this much worse and we can lose it, or we can come out of better. And I think that will be determined by what happens, frankly, in the next couple of years. Now, there's a lot of work to do in a lot of subfields of these discussions, but thinking about some of the foundational layers of it, I was wondering, uh, Congressman, what you think the top priority to fix is in each of civics education and media literacy? Well, in terms of civics education, I think we need to better integrate this idea that the, the history of our country really is this history of tension between our highest ideals in our worst impulses. This has been a tension that has followed us the entire project in democracy in America. And, and it's, you know, it's nowhere near more evident than in our very own constitution when you have these amazing words that articulated the idea of self-governance, uh, the idea that um, uh, you know, our leaders should be elected by the people and not ordained by a God or a higher power, which was a radical idea at the time and nobody thought could succeed. 
But in that very same document, uh, we enshrine slavery and talk about treating people as three-fifths of a person. So that idea of that tension and conflict between those two things continues to carry with us. And I think we have to have honest conversations about that conflict if we're ever going to deal with it and come out of it better and in a more healthy way than, frankly, having people storm our capital and try to overturn an election. Uh, so that's number one. And in terms of digital literacy, we do have to do a much better job. We have a 20th century education system uh, that uh, is dealing with 21st century technology. I mean, I remember growing up and uh, going to you know, li- the library course where you go in and you get the little library index cards and you have to research and get the book. Well, things actually haven't changed that much <laughs> in our public education system. Uh, hasn't caught up with uh, the, the issues of disinformation, misinformation, teaching people how to um, find good information and be discriminating consumers of that information. But it's not just K through 12 education. It's also impacting older Americans as well. So we can't just limit it to the K through 12 education. We have to find a way to provide people tools to um, be better consumers of uh, information later in life uh, as that information evolves. Thank you. Congresswoman, I have a question for you from Jeremy Hefner, who's chancellor at the University of Denver. And he is very keen that we think about the role of universities in uh, toning down the, the temperature and would like to know what you would like to see from universities in regards to civil discourse, free speech, and pluralism of thought. Yeah, thank you. It's such an important role uh, that universities and colleges play in, in educating the next generation. And I think there are there are several pieces to that. Um, you know, I, I think that if you if you look at what a university experience is supposed to be, it's supposed to be a time when your ideas are challenged and when when you're educated and you learn the skills and you d- develop the skills either to cast aside what you believed because you recognize it was it was wrong or to learn to defend it and and I think that that too often today in our universities and our in our colleges we do have cancel culture uh, views are canceled and and that is just it's it's really unhealthy I mean and I you know I began by talking about views that are outside of our public discourse. And I think we all can identify those, the kind of anti-Semitism and white supremacy. But um, you should not be in the in the business of telling people that simply because you're conservative, there's no space for your view. And, and I also think that we have to fully recognize, you know, we want our children to learn from our history. And and Jason is absolutely right that 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 our history is imperfect, but that should not stop us. Uh, you know the the fact that when the Constitution was ratified, you know I could not have participated. Um, uh, shouldn't stop me from learning about and understanding uh, the fundamental genius of the people who who risked their lives to bring this nation to, uh, into being. And I, I think that we have had a move away on many college campuses, and high schools as well, from teaching the history of great men and women, you know, learning the biographies of the men and women who led before and reading biographies of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and Margaret Thatcher um, and Harriet Tubman and understanding how generations past, both Americans and, and others, have dealt with challenges and, and, and led. And I think that is such a, 
a loss for our students when we don't teach about great men and women in history or we don't read the great books. And, and you can say these are the flaws of Western cultural tradition, and there certainly are many, as we've discussed, but we shouldn't prevent our students from learning, as I said, just a fundamental miracle of self-governing society and of democracy that's at the heart of our constitutional republic. Representative Cheney, would you consider running for president in the next election if that's what it takes to stop Donald Trump returning to the White House? And Representative Crow, to you, do you think the country would benefit from a bipartisan ticket if that's what it took to stop Donald Trump returning to the White House? I'll let you go first, Representative Cheney. I wanted uh, Jason to go first. Um, <laughs> I don't know which one is tougher. That's a maybe. I'm taking that as a maybe, uh, Congresswoman. Oh, look, I am. I'm, I am obviously not thinking about 24 in terms of of what I might do. I'm very focused on on uh, my reelection and on the select committee. And I, I think the substance of ensuring that whoever we elect as president is somebody, and I obviously want it to be a Republican, want it to be somebody who shares the views that I do, uh, but but we, we have to make sure it's somebody who believes in the Constitution and who we're going to entrust. It's such a, such a tremendous trust we place in the president. And as Jason said, if the people decide in this country that they're not going to defend the institutions, particularly if the person that, you know, who sits in the White House decides that, then the country can't protect itself and, and the institutions can't. So I, I think that's that's the most important thing. Well, I, I want uh, a Democratic president and vice president. That's obviously my strong instinct and response here. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it, that's based on a couple of things. It's, you know, first of all, not partisan as much as it is, you know, my friend and colleague pointed out earlier, the Republican Party is dealing with a, a soul searching right now and it needs to go through that process. Uh, and, and, and frankly, I think that one of the ways to help with that process is a strong rebuke to the politics and the division of the former president. They can come in a lot of different forms, uh, but it can come at the ballot box as well. Uh, so um, I think that's what needs to happen. And I, I do think there needs to be a writ large uh, kind of uprising of Americans uh, of both political part, uh, persuasions, because I absolutely agree with Liz that we need two strong, viable parties for this project to work. That's what our system is based on. And it doesn't work when I don't have a good negotiating partner on the other side of the aisle. Uh, and it's, that's becoming increasingly harder to find in Congress. So we need to reinvigorate that. And then there's also the, the important uh, point that I'm not always right. Uh, and and you know, that project of, of you know, sussing out ideas doesn't stop when you leave college. Uh, this is really complicated stuff that we're dealing with. These problems are very hard. Uh, there's a lot of uh, consequences to them, unintended and intended. Uh, and it's so important for me to have somebody that I can have a, a tough, nuanced policy discussion with that can challenge my ideas, I can challenge his or hers, come up with the best res resolution for the American people. And right now, that's hard to have. Uh, so uh, we have to look at how we can reinvigorate that for the good of the country. 
Colorado Representative Jason Crow, a Democrat, and Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney, a Republican. They spoke about how to restore American democracy. Their discussion was part of the University of Denver's second annual Democracy Summit this month. It was moderated by Politico's Ryan Heath. Our thanks to DU for the audio. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Denver's love affair with trains is a story of shared dreams and a city on the rise. I think Cal's vision was to build the best rail system in the country. It's also a story of disappointment. It's the commuter rail line that may be finished in time for your grandkids to use. CPR's newest podcast shows how the Denver area went all in on trains and what happened when the plan jumped the track. Ghost Train, everywhere you get your podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Experts predict the world could lose half of its languages in the next hundred years. That's the language of the Ute Mountain Ute tribe in the Four Corners region of Colorado. Only 100 people still speak it fluently. To save their language, the Ute Mountain Ute have created a digital dictionary. Juanita Plentyholes is the project coordinator with the Ute Mountain Ute tribe. That was her voice you just heard. Wilmea is with the Language Conservancy. It preserves endangered languages. I spoke with them in January. Juanita, welcome. Thank you. And well, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. Juanita, quick translation. You just said in Ute, if we don't preserve our language now, it will die in the future. How did you learn to speak Ute? Well, I learned growing up because I was born in 62. So everybody spoke Ute. Ute was spoken everywhere. Uh, My grandfather My uncles, my mom just spoke Ute, so I grew up in that. Um, My mom never went to school, and she spoke Ute till the day she died. She never spoke English at all. I just learned it, you know, just hearing it all the time growing up. So it was just a part of me. How would you describe the language? It's really descriptive, and it's really long. It's not short. Do you think that's reflected in culture, um, how folks sit down and converse? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you talk to an elder, you'll sit there for a long time because they'll just talk and talk. How worried are you about the future of the Ute language? I think my generation and the generation below me, we understand very well and we can speak it, some of us. But the generation below that, they can understand but not speak. And then it goes down, down. So the younger generation now, the kids, it's not being spoken. I mean, I think Ute is spoken in every household here, but not fluently. So they know little words and phrases. It's just important that we let them know how important the language is to us because it identifies who we are as people, as Native people. You know, your culture and language is what makes you distinct. So, you know, this work is important to me because we need to get it preserved somehow. So even if we don't teach it in our homes, 
down the road, who knows? It may, nobody may even speak Yud anymore. But somewhere down the road, someone is going to have a question. You know, maybe a child 20 years down the road, if we don't speak Yud anymore, they're going to say, I wonder how the Yud's talked. I wonder how they said things. And then here we'll have it preserved. It'll be here for them. Well, let's bring you in here. One study estimates that the world loses a language every 40 days. Do you agree with Juanita that the Ute language is in danger of going away if nothing's done? Well, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we work with over 50 endangered languages in uh, North America, and, you know, we see firsthand, uh, just as Juanita was describing, how um, the different generations have different levels of fluency and proficiency in their languages. You know, we can go back almost to the year itself that the natural intergenerational language transmission stopped happening. And for most tribes in the United States, that was somewhere in the mid-1950s. So basically what that means is from, you know, 1954 onwards, that is, people born after 1954 were going to be primarily English language first language speakers. And so then what what happens is that the the language isn't reproducing itself. No new speakers are being created. And the real number of speakers is actually peaked in the mid-1950s, and then it's in a slow decline since then as, you know, uh, people naturally pass on. And just as Juanita was describing, you know, the average speaker age is, you know, in the 70s and 80s. Um, currently, right now in Wyoming, working on a project uh, with another tribe uh, for the Shoshone, and we are uh, working with speakers that are in their late 80s and 90s. So you've helped assemble this digital dictionary. Can you describe what it is? We put together a program uh, using a, a method called the Rapid Word Collection Method that, working with about uh, 20 elders, we were able to collect over the course of about two years, about 10,000 words. Uh, and we used computers and other kinds of specialized software to record uh, these words across 1,700 domains or categories. These essentially represent the entire universe of Ute, uh, everything from you know, plants and animals to prayers and medicines and uh, feelings and uh, all the other pieces of, of life and its, and its experience. And we tried to do a, a very thorough job of documenting that. And uh, essentially taking those uh, recordings and those transcriptions, we were able to transform that into uh, different things that could be utilized by students, including an online dictionary, an app that can be downloaded onto the phone, and also uh, eventually a print dictionary. Juanita, why were you interested in a spoken dictionary rather than one that's written? Because, you know, when we look at words, and we've had a number of linguists that have worked with some of the programs before, and we do have words that are written, but, you know, with each linguist, they write it a little differently. So when you see a word that's written, it's you don't really know how to say the word. But for a lot of our people that don't speak you, it's hard for them to say the word. So I, I you know, I said it's it would be good if we had something that's spoken. So, you know, like dog, sadich, and then they would know that's how to say sadich. You know, it's not, you, you hear it, so you know how it's supposed to be pronounced. 
this dictionary, this Ute dictionary, has 5,000 words. How many words are there in a language generally? Well, there's languages like English that have over a million words associated with them, and many tens of thousands are coined every year, often having to do with technology and new things that are developed. Most languages uh, typically in the world have anywhere between two and 500,000 words. And for the uh, indigenous and Native American languages that we work with, you know, they may have up to 100,000 words. As we're going along, as new things are being discovered, we have to make words up for them, too. Because, you know, when, when the cars first came, there was no Ute word for cars. So that was something they had to make up a word for it. They call cars quat, and quat means it goes. Mm. You know, same way with airplanes. You know, yichid, it flies. So, you know, right now I said, we're going to, we're at a point now in our lives where things have changed. Technology has come aboard. And, you know, there's no Ute words for that. So we're going to have to develop words for the computers. There's a word for telephone, but maybe we have to make up another word for cell phones. Juanita, how do you say thank you? Dobayak. 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 I don't think I got it, but thank you for being with us. Yeah. Thank you very much for, you know, inviting us to come on and interviewing us on this work that's important to us. Well, thanks for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Juanita Plenty Holes of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe in the Four Corners region. She's project manager for the tribe's new digital dictionary. Wilmea is chairman of the Language Conservancy. We spoke in January. It's been more than a year since the East Troublesome Fire swept through Grand County. The blaze didn't destroy nearly as many homes as the more recent Marshall Fire, but both disasters have shocked the local housing market. As CPR's Sam Brash reports, those challenges could preview what some experts called climate gentrification. Joanna Robinson's voice trembles when she recounts the day the East Troublesome Fire blew up into the history books. She says that was the last moment she felt anywhere like home. While we were having soup for dinner, and I heard a huge explosion. Joanna and her husband, Steve Robinson, lived in a cabin near Rocky Mountain National Park. It was their attempt to rough it a little as empty nesters. The couple made daily trips to fetch water from a well, and Steve's salary as a local painting contractor was just enough to cover the rent. But that explosion, it marked the beginning of the end. It turns out it was fire. It was the fire cresting the hill. I can still hear it. I can't describe it, but I can still hear it. Just that huge explosion. They loaded their cars and evacuated in a matter of minutes. When they returned, almost nothing was left except some strange reminders of their old life, like hardened rivers of metal on top of the burnt soil. Those were Steve's aluminum ladders. Aluminum melts at 1,221 degrees. 
the fire destroyed more than 360 homes. Most of those residents had some sort of insurance protection, but not the Robinsons. Their landlord held the policy, and he opted to sell rather than rebuild. The couple hasn't found a place to buy or rent in Grand Lake since. Almost 16 months after the disaster, they're still living in a local church basement. We don't own a place, and we don't have a place to rent that has a lease with our name on it that we know that we can stay in for a year and two and three, and it is, it is homeless, which is a hard word to say. Their situation could hint at one-way climate change is already inflaming inequality. As fires become more frequent and destructive, wealthy people often have an easier time rebuilding. Meanwhile, lower-income families often lack critical resources to stay afloat, like insurance, savings, and a place to stay. The costs of climate change begin to add up, and really just the wealthy people can afford to live there. That's Jesse Keenan. He studies real estate at Tulane University, and he's coined a broad term to help think through these dynamics. Climate gentrification. Keenan says it's not like regular gentrification, when new development draws people into a town or neighborhood. So climate gentrification is different because it's not about supply, it's about demand. And what it is, it's, it's a shift in consumer preferences. It's a shift in the recognition by people that there are risks in investing and in living in certain places. Grand County is facing both types of gentrification. The area has seen a development boom, drawing lots of wealthy newcomers. At the same time, working class locals are recalculating whether they can afford to stay amid rising housing prices. Megan Ledeen directs the Grand Foundation, which works to protect affordable housing. She says it was in short supply even before the fire. We're not unique to any other resort community, I'd say in the nation. People want to buy vacation homes. They want to buy homes that they rent out to get their return on investment, whatever. More power to them. And Ladine says the disaster only added to the overall shortage. Suddenly, hundreds of homes were gone and hundreds of people needed a new place to live. Because of the astronomical rents of the available inventory that is still there, it's like adding insult to injury because they still don't have a place to live. She says those high costs push some fire victims to leave, but not everybody. Last fall, her nonprofit identified five local families who lost their homes but were still looking for permanent places to live. Some were staying in RVs or camping on public land. Now, her foundation is in the final stages of buying a set of condo units in Grand Lake. It could be a new home for the fire victims and a permanent source of workforce housing, with rents capped at a percentage of a resident's income. You still have fire families that don't have a permanent place to live, but as a result of it and taking care of them could solve a bigger problem in the future for your community in the relation to affordable housing. As for the Robinsons, the family living in the church basement, they say they've considered leaving Grand County since the fire, but decided against it. Steve's self-employed and has a good business here and a good reputation and gets a lot of referral business. That's not something you can pick up and just move. The possibility of workforce housing in town has left them hopeful. And if the sale goes through, they want to be among the first to move in. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. That's our show for today. Thanks to the team who makes this happen. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. 
We'd love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Colorado Matters. Or send us an email, coloradomatters at cpr.org. We know it's not always possible to listen every day. So be sure to tune in Sunday mornings at 10 for best of segments from the week. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.